Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Matthew 13, um, verses 31 to 35. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 30 kilograms of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Thanks, Connor. Super. The parable of the mustard seed and the yeast. So we're trying to understand what is the kingdom of heaven and what does it mean for the kingdom of heaven to have come to earth. And in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells nine parables and and, and, and following chapters explaining the kingdom of heaven. And here is the question behind Matthew 13. Why does Jesus tell so many parables about the kingdom of heaven? Here's the question that the readers and the listeners of his day had. And it goes like this. You may have had the question yourself. Why are so few people Christian? Or you could put the question like this. Why do so many people miss or reject Jesus? They are the questions behind the nine parables. They're big questions. Why are so few people saved? Why do so many people miss or reject Jesus? I ask the question myself. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you might put it up from your perspective. Thanks for coming. You might put it from your perspective. Why do I find it so hard to believe? Why can I not get who Jesus is? Matthew chapter 13. You see, in Matthew chapters 1 to 12... We're introduced to the person of Jesus. We haven't looked at it, but this is what happens in Matthew 1 to 12. And Matthew, the writer of the gospel, the biography of Jesus' life, is trying to persuade us that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited saviour king of Israel, and surprise, surprise, of the world. The Jews weren't necessarily expecting that. So in the first 12 chapters of, Matthew, of Matthew's gospel, I urge you to read it if you haven't, we have Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. We have astonishing miracles being done by Jesus. We have the most incredible, arguably the greatest moral teaching ever given to humankind, the Sermon on the Mount. No one's ever surpassed that teaching. In Matthew chapter 1 to 12, the deaf hear, the blind see, the mute mute speak, the lame walk, the seas are calm, the fever goes, the leprosy is healed, demons submit, the devil is silenced, the dead are raised. In Matthew chapter 1 to 12, we learn the king of the world has arrived. He's bringing heaven to earth. It's wonderful. And something very strange happens. Three types of people don't like him or miss him or reject him. The religious authorities, you would have thought the Jewish leaders would get him, but they don't. The secular Roman authorities, well, you might understand why they wouldn't. They might feel threatened and they don't get him. And really surprisingly, and Matthew chapter 13 ends with this, his own family don't get him. 
What's happening? The king is here. The kingdom of heaven on earth. And yet, and yet, and yet, religious people, secular people, and his own family don't get him. They miss him. They reject him. They can't see who he is. He, they don't. And the crowds are large, but when you really look at it, the true followers of Jesus are very small. How do you explain the opposition to Jesus and the smallness of his community? The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. Four things we learn about the kingdom of heaven. It's hidden yet revealed. It's now and not yet. It's indiscernible yet powerful. It's small yet growing wonderfully big. Four paradoxes, four tensions, four mysteries. You can't understand the kingdom if you don't understand these four points. Hidden yet revealed. If you were a Jewish person and you knew your Old Testament well, you'd know the famous passage in Daniel chapter 2 where Daniel has a dream about a succession of, well, I think actually it's Nebuchadnezzar who asked him to interpret the dream, excuse me, has a dream of successive emperors and kingdoms that come and go. And they refer to the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman empires. And in the dream, Daniel, as he interprets it, sees a body, and each part was made up of different metals, and each metal represented something different. And in the vision, we learn this. A rock was cut out, not by human hands, Daniel chapter 2. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold, all these different kingdoms, were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. Well, what did this strange dream mean? Daniel continues, verse 44 of chapter 2. In the time of those kings, the Roman emperors, the Roman kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will in itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, all those empires to pieces. That's the Jewish expectation of the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom that's going to crush all other kingdoms. A kingdom that means all other kings and empires are going to go. A kingdom that means one day the whole earth will be filled with the wonder and the glory of this kingdom. It's going to displace all other reigns. It's going to break the proud sovereignty of human manifested rule, which has dominated world history. The Egyptians, you know. Babylonians, the Assyrians, the, all those rules that have dominated this final kingdom is going to come. And yet Jesus is here declaring the kingdom in his preaching and teaching, demonstrating the kingdom in the most marvelous signs and wonders that have ever been done, healings and things, and yet the kingdoms of this earth are not being displaced. The Roman rulers are not being crushed. Why is this? The mustard seed and the yeast. The kingdom is real. It's powerful. It's at work. It's growing. It really is the real thing. But the naked eye can't see it. You need the eye of faith. 
The kingdom of heaven for all its growing power is like a mustard seed and a leaven. And in verse, seven, uh, verse 11 of chapter 13, we read, it's a secret. And as any good secret is, you know, it, only those in the know understand the secret. How is it possible that the religious leaders, the Roman authorities, his own family don't see and reject Jesus? How come the followers of Jesus are so small? Because it is hidden, but it is revealed to those that will hunger for it. In other words, the kingdom cannot be understood like a political kingdom from the outside in. It did you no good to be a historical contemporary of Jesus in, in your understanding of the kingdom. A lot of people say to me, Steve, if I was there when Jesus was there, if I walked the same streets of Palestine when Jesus was there, I would have believed. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't, because they didn't. Without the eye of faith, the historical presence of Jesus doesn't necessarily mean you see the kingdom. Because everyone's missing it. You can't see the kingdom from the outside like a political entity. You see it from the inside as you submit to the king and see him in his beauty through the eye of faith. One day, the kingdom's going to come in power and glory. And every eye, it says, we'll see. But in the first coming, not every eye saw. And in contrast to the earthly kingdoms that are about power and glory, you know, the Roman Empire, power, glory, military might, conquering, coercion, the kingdom of heaven comes in a completely different way. And if you're looking for it in that way, you're going to miss it, you're going to miss it, you're going to miss it. There's a mystery, it's hidden, it needs to be revealed. And therefore, Jesus says in Matthew 11, it doesn't come to the powerful elite, it comes to who? Who gets it? The children. They see it. Remember Lucy in the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? She was the only one that could see Aslan. She believed. The kingdom of God is here, but instead of changing the political order of things and, the, and making changes to the external world, it's bringing change internally in human hearts as people submit to the king. So what does this mean in practice? This is the key application. The kingdom comes now by persuasion and not power. The king is here to win minds and hearts. He's not here to dominate. He could with all his power and might as the great king of the universe. Come, I'm just coming to destroy everything that's not in line with me. But he wants to give people an opportunity to come into the kingdom. And so he spreads the gospel that says repent and believe and enter into a relationship with the God of the universe through me. The kingdom comes in an utterly unexpected way, not now destroying human rule, not now abolishing sin from the earth, not now bringing a baptism of fire, which John the Baptist said would happen. It comes quietly. It comes unobtrusively. It comes secretly. It's at work amongst men and women who really submit to the king. And the crowds are interested, but they never see it. People are being set free from the power of sin and Satan and death and fear and anxiety and a whole host of other things, and no one sees it apart from those that are in. That's why people don't get it. It's hidden, yet revealed to those who will submit in humility. Secondly, it's now and it's not yet. I've already hinted at this. If the first surprise of the kingdom of heaven is how quietly it came, the second surprise is it doesn't come once but it comes twice. Like a seed that's hidden, it will grow into fullness. It comes the first time partially, but one day it's going to come fully. It's what's called the already not yet aspect of the kingdom. It's inaugurated, it's, it's really begun, but it's not consummated, it's not completed. It is now, 
It's here, but it's not yet. It's not fully here. Now, we have to make sure we understand, and I've already hinted at this, uh, what the kingdom is because uh, of how we interpret kingdom today. We would think of kingdom, we might think of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, a kingdom that is a geographic area or a political jurisdiction, like a realm or geography. And those things, realm and, 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 and geography and people and political entities, all relate to the kingdom of heaven, but they aren't, it's not a replacement. So New Testament scholars will tell you that the word for kingdom in the New Testament does not mean realm, it does not mean territory, it primarily refers to a rule or a reign, an administration, a pattern, an order of life. And above all else, it means the presence of the king who is here ruling and reigning. So it's not a realm, it's not a political entity, it is a rule of the king. So I've got his book here, one of the most famous books on the kingdom of God by Eldon Ladd says this, the primary meaning of the word both in Hebrew and the Old Testament and the Greek word in the New Testament is rank, authority, sovereignty exercised by a king. Uh, a basileia may indeed be a realm over which a sovereign exercises authority, but it may be the people who belong to that realm and over whom authority is exercised. But these are secondary and derived meanings. First of all, the kingdom is an authority to rule, the sovereignty of a king. So, maybe you're going, well, what does Steve, that's the most confusing thing I've ever heard. Um, <laughs> let me try and unpack it then in relation to realms and places and time. The kingdom of God is the rule of Jesus. In heaven, that rule is uncontested. On earth, that rule is contested. Now, heaven and earth are not a long way from each other, as we often think. In the biblical thought, they overlap and interlock. Heaven is not a non-physical reality and earth a physical reality. They're both physical realities. The angel Gabriel was a physical person who came from heaven, or being, I should say. Both are physical and both are different realms. So, but in one, there's no, he's accepted as king, and the other, he's, there's contest, he's contested to be king. Think of uh, the different worlds of uh, you know, Narnia through the wardrobe. Two worlds that interact physically. Or the world of wizards, which interacts with the world of muggles in Harry Potter. So the kingdom is contested and not contested, depending on what realm it's in. And the church then becomes a place where we accept the rule, do you see? An, out, an, out, an outcrop of heaven, an outpost of heaven on earth. Time. If that's how the kingdom relates to realms and, 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 uh, and heaven and earth, what about time? In the future, when the kingdom fully comes, there'll be no one contesting it. It'll come fully in power and glory and every eye will see. Now, it is contested and not everyone sees it. So there's different ages where Jesus' rule is either accepted by all or contested by some. So on earth, in God's sovereignty, in, in, under his rule, he has allowed Satan to continue to exercise authority on this earth, in this age. So when Jesus comes the first time, he defeats sin, Satan, and death, but he doesn't destroy them. That's the second time he comes. He will destroy all three the first time he just defeats them. In God's sovereign purposes, Satan is allowed to permit exercise and uh, have a level of authority and exercise a great level of power during this current age. So we read that he, uh, he has blinded the minds of unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4. He's the God of this age. 
Ephesians 2, we read that the character of this age is darkness. The world is in rebellion against God's rule, and Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit is now at work in those that are disobedient. You see, there's a contest going on now. They won't be on the final day. The now and the not yet. So the future reign of God has landed on earth now in real powerful ways but it's contested and therefore it hasn't ended all kingdoms yet, but it one day will. There is a tension and now and a not yet. That is why many miss it and remain unaffected. So the kingdom of heaven is hidden yet revealed now and not yet. Thirdly, it's indiscernible. Uh, I've missed it anyway, you know know where it goes. Indiscernible yet powerful. So both parables tell how the kingdom comes in an unforeseen way. Like a mustard seed. No one sees a seed. It's in the ground. Like yeast. You can't see it in the dirt, but something tiny, something insignificant. You'd, you'd miss it if you didn't. No one had taught you there was yeast in there. You would never know. And you feel the smallness, don't you? Sometimes as Christians, you go, we just feel like this really small community in the world seems so big. And you say, oh, yeah, it is small. But Jesus says, do not let its apparent insignificance deceive you. Do not be discouraged. It is indiscernible, yet the gates, the power of hell, will not destroy this kingdom. It's, it's going on forever. Don't let that feeling of vulnerability ever get you down. It's really, really powerful. Don't be discouraged. One day the birds of the air are going to come and they're going to sit in this, must, uh, this mustard tree. So it's, don't despise it. Daniel 2, yes, the stone has become a seed and the seed is just as powerful as the stone. It will fill the whole earth. Yes, it's hidden in the dough, and you can hardly see it. It's unobservable, but it is really, really powerfully at work in this world. Why don't people believe? Because they want the discernible. They want to see it. They want it more tangible. They want it to affect, like, I just want God to fix everything. And he says, that's not how my kingdom comes. But it will come in your heart if you'll open yourself up. You know, I work in business and in sales, you know, and the big question is, what's the ROI? What's the return on investment, you know? That's not how the kingdom works. It's the different metrics, it's different results we're looking for. So the kingdom of heaven is hidden yet revealed, now and not yet, discernible yet powerful. Finally, it is small, yet growing wonderfully big. To the human eye, the world appears little change. The kingdom of Satan seems unshaken. Yet the kingdom of heaven has come among men and women, and those who will receive him will enter that kingdom. When he comes again in power and glory, in his visible return, the powers of Satan and evil will finally be overcome. But he is coming. He is coming back. He is coming back. And so we're told to get ready. We're told to submit. We're told to be aware of the schemes of the evil one in this present age. We're told to be discerning and watch. We're told to wait eagerly and wait patiently. What assurance. What stability. Our world seems to go more and more crazy. No, 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 no. He's coming back. It's small now. It's going to be wonderfully big. Don't fear. Don't be discouraged. Get ready for his return. Two, verses, uh, two parables, three or four short verses. The kingdom of, he- God, the kingdom of heaven is hidden yet revealed, now and not yet, indiscernible yet powerful, small yet growing wonderfully big. You know the place 
where you see the kingdom of heaven come to earth in a way that no one expected. The cross. The cross of Christ. The cross of the king is the place where you see all of these things. It is hidden. No one gets it. Everyone thinks they've, the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities think they've won and they're losing. <laughs> it's hidden. But to those with faith, they saw it as a victory, didn't they? And it was hidden. Here is, the, here is the greatness of the love of our king dying for me. It's, it just, it's to, the, to the person who's been born again by the Spirit, this is just the most magnificent truth in the world. To the person who, who is, is after power and glory, ah, he's just a weak Messiah. You see? It's, it's now and not yet. So the first coming on the cross, he saves us from the penalty of sin. At the second coming, he's going to save us from the presence of sin. It's indiscernible yet powerful. Satan is being rendered ineffective and his power broken and sin and death are being dealt with. And yet, it's so powerful. Death is being dealt with. We've lived in fear of death for the last two years with COVID. Satan's being dealt with. And ah, most people don't get it. It's just indiscernible. You can't see what's going on at the cross, can you? The perfect son of God is dying in our place to pay our penalty, to die our death. He's going to rise again. This is the best news in the world. Most people don't get it. And it's small yet going wonderfully big. You know, at the cross, there's only a few women. Only a few women there, crying, ready to perform the Jewish burial act. All the disciples have fled. All the crowds have gone. It's just a dead Messiah and a few people next to him on crosses. And yet, it would only take a few decades and then a few centuries. And this gospel message would spread and it would spread and it would spread from that first woman who was, who was, who was told the resurrection, uh, you know, she was the first witness, Mary Magdalene. From that one woman, it would go and it would affect millions and billions of lives. It would affect millions, well, that's an exaggeration, it would affect hundreds of civilizations. It would give moral standards to the whole Western world. This crucified Messiah. So small. And yet we base so many of our cultural and our moral values, our lives, on him. So, I have to finish. Believe it or not, I have seven application points. Strap in. <laughs> They'll be quick. Seven application points. Uh, first, it gives us two things and, and it keeps us with five things. Okay? Two gives, five keeps. Two gives. The first give, it gives us the pattern of the kingdom. If the kingdom comes in weakness and humbly and to the lowly, if our king is crowned on a cross with a crown of thorns, if only little children really understand who he is, humility is the pattern of this kingdom. And if you belong to it, humility is the pattern of your life under the king. And it starts with the weakness and the humility to say, I am poor in spirit and I must repent of my sin. It's the only way into the kingdom. Humility. That you can't do it on your own. That you have to give up your dreams sometimes. You have to deny yourself. And, but what you discover is that as we die, we live. As we let go, we, we find a new control. The way up is down. The way to true riches is to give your money away. The way to lasting happiness is to seek not your own happiness, but the happiness of others. The, the way to genuinely influence others is to give up your power and serve them. The king washes feet and things. The pattern of the king gives us the pattern of the you live in this kingdom, humility is the pattern. And by the way, humility will give you 
contentment, joy, peace, and power that no earthly kingdom will ever give you. The pattern of the kingdom, it gives us that. The secondly, it gives us the right expectations for this life. The other day I was uh, trying to teach Annabelle and Jacob the difference between being an optimist and a pessimist. And we were looking at our family, the four of us, and who was an optimist and, and who was a pe- pessimist. And I was doing a pretty shocking job at explaining what the difference was. And then I said to, uh, and then I said after about 10 or 15 minutes of Jacob just looking at me like I'm an absolute nunt, uh, he, he looked and I said, oh, it's like, it's like perspective, Jacob. When you see this glass of water, you know, is it half full or, or half empty? The optimist says it's half full and the pessimist says it's half empty. And, and Jacob goes, Dad, why don't you say that at the start? And I went, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> when you understand the tensions of the kingdom, it keeps you being from overly optimistic or overly pessimistic. It keeps you from being naive and it keeps you from despair. Because the kingdom is present partially but not fully, we can expect substantial healing in all kinds of areas of life, but we're not going to see full healing in most areas of life. So if, if we just stress the now of the kingdom, we're going, yeah, healing for everything in every part of you know, our, our human existence. And it's actually, that's not quite right. But then if we, only, if, if we don't stress enough of the now, it's like, well, we can't expect anything till heaven. No, 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 that's not right too. Substantial healing, but probably not total healing in lots of areas of life. So it, we're not trying to get quick solutions, and we, we can handle the fact that we continue to suffer, and we don't underestimate the power of sin in our hearts and all those kind of things. So we don't get too pessimistic and we don't get too optimistic. Let me literally briefly go through four areas. I said there were seven applications, there's four sub-points, forgive me. (laughs) Knowledge of the truth. We know the gospel and we can be super clear on it and confident in it, but we don't know lots. And no one should be arrogant to say they've got it all sorted and know everything and how everything should work. No, no, we don't. So on the gospel we're clear. Jesus died and rose for our sins and guaranteed us eternal life. We can be straight with that. But as that famous saying comes down from church history, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. To have disagreements and go, we don't know it all. You don't know it all, I don't know it all, so we can disagree and still love each other on the non-essentials. And in all things, charity. Personal growth and change. When the king comes into your life, you can expect change. He's going to do some reordering. It might be traumatic change initially, but you can expect to grow in love and joy and peace and patience and all those wonderful things, but you, you, you're not going to get there fully, and you're going to keep getting trapped with those sins and you're going to habits, and, the, and you're going to get frustrated with yourself, and if you don't know the now and the not yet of the kingdom, then you don't understand why life sometimes, and you just can't seem to grow as a Christian, you're like, ah, it's not all going to get sorted this side of heaven, but I should be seeing progress, the now and not yet. Church change and growth. We can expect God to, see, to bring salvation to people's lives and revival to communities and, and church to grow, but we can also expect churches to have problems. And we looked at that last week when Monty did a great job with us and there's the error and evil amongst the church until the final day. And we don't get critical of other churches and we don't just church hop and we just get on with the fact that this is how it is in this age. And social change. Christ is now ruling over history and through common grace he gives the world the institutions of family and government to restrain evil and he gives us strong consciences and the gifts of art and leadership and science to enrich our worlds. 
to help us with trouble and pain, God has given us improved health care, medical advances, growing defense of human rights, the abolition of slavery, protection for working people, and so on and so on. The already aspect of the kingdom means we can expect God to bring social change to our community on earth now. But on the other hand, the kingdom's not here fully. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be selfishness, cruelty, terrorism, oppression. Christians should harbor no illusions about political or expect utopian conditions where we can fix it all now. The not yet means we will not fully trust any political or social agenda to bring righteousness on earth. That only happens when the king returns. It gives us the right expectations and it gives us the pattern. So, really quickly, the five keeps. What does it keep you? It keeps us going. As in, you don't, when it goes wrong in life, for your life, for our lives, in the world, don't despair. Don't despair. Don't throw your hands up and go, no, it keeps you going. And sometimes with Katie, I had the icebreaker, perseverance. Just keep going, knowing the now and the kingdom is fully going to come one day. So Eldon Ladd says this, our responsibility is not to save the world. Oh, weight off the shoulders. Huh. We're not required to transform this age. There will be wars and troubles, persecutions and martyrdoms until the very end. Jez prayed for that, didn't he, at the start? Some people today are meeting to worship, fear of their lives. He says this, Eldon Ladd, at the end of his book, brilliant book. I am glad these words are in the Bible. They give me stability. They provide sanity. They keep me from an unrealistic optimism. We're not to be discouraged when evil times come keep going it keeps us dependent that great prayer actually it's in verse 32 you know don't worry don't try and take control don't map out the future seek first his kingdom and his righteousness just just stay dependent on the king today don't worry about tomorrow you don't know how tomorrow's going to go are you dependent on him today he'll take care of tomorrow don't worry about tomorrow it's got enough worries of itself the king says so just live for today what's going to happen my home or my kids or my career or my family or my ma- it's not that those things aren't important but they should never be primary Just stay dependent on the king today. Seek his righteousness and his kingdom. It keeps us praying. What does Matthew 6 say? Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now we know what to pray, the pattern of the kingdom and how the kingdom might come into our lives and through our lives to many more. Bring your kingdom on earth in increasing measure as you rule as king in my life and in our lives. It keeps us pure with the right tactics, doesn't it? As a church, we're into evangelism and discipleship. We want to make as big a difference as we can in the city and the communities of Dublin as we can, in the culture as we can, but we're not going to use political power. That's not our way in. Our way in is to win minds and hearts to the king and then to represent him in the different spheres we go. If you end up in a political sphere, you represent him, but you're not putting your hope in that. You keep your tactics pure. This is a different type of kingdom to the kingdoms of the world. And it keeps us heavenly-minded, and of earthly use. If you have no hope of an afterlife, you know, the evolutionists today, you know, the, the great secularists today, say, well, when you die, you rot. There's nothing more to life than this life. If you have no hope of life after death, then you have so much pressure to make this life perfect because you have nothing else to hope in. When you know that this life is just a transitory moment in a great 
perspective of eternity, you can hold it more lightly and put less pressure on your shoulders to make this life perfect, the modern generation's problem. I've got to have the best job, the best career, the best family, the best sister. Why? 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 You're going to get the best one day. So live for the king, and he'll give you all kinds of things now. So I'm heavenly minded. That's where I belong. That's my citizenship. That's where I'm going. That's when I'll get the best of everything. So now I can just get on and love and serve and care without worrying if I miss out. And this person's getting ahead of me in my, my career. And this person seems to be having a family when I don't. And that person's got that. Just chill. And just get on and serve with what God has given you and what the king has decided in his sovereignty to give you. So you don't have to be detached from now but you don't have to expect everything now, which makes you more useful now. Because it's not about you, it's about serving the king. You know, Jesus says this, doesn't he, twice. He who has ears, let him hear. Have you heard? Have you seen? Have you understood the pattern of the kingdom? The now and not yet of the kingdom? How it comes hidden, but it's revealed? how it's different from the kingdoms of this world but affects them, and how we, not everything is going to happen now, but it will one day. And we can say, like Paul said, come Lord Jesus. So would you stand? We're going to pray to finish, and then Leanne's going to lead us in a song. I'm going to pray to finish, and Leanne will lead us. Let's take a moment just to be silent. If you feel comfortable, just close your eyes and just think, how is the Holy Spirit in impress something about the kingdom on your heart today that has helped you or that you know you need to respond to this idea of the rule of the king in your life and in our community let's just take a moment to be silent before him Father, forgive us where we map onto your kingdom our expectations that we get from earthly kingdoms. And forgive us when we're like the religious or the secular or your own family, different authorities in your life who just don't get you because we've got the wrong expectations of what you'll be like. We pray, Father, you'd give us eyes to see and you'd reveal what is hidden. You'd teach us this great tension of the now and not yet. That you'd fortify us with courage that it's, even though it's indiscernible, it's really powerful. And you'd keep us living for that final day when Jesus comes the second time and he wraps up this world and he does destroy all other kingdoms and that we would be ready and waiting for him to come. And as servants, we'd be living for his kingdom now. And as a church, we'd be an outcrop of heaven on earth. So we thank you for your teaching. We thank you for this wonderful, these two wonderful parables. And we pray you'd strengthen us this week to live as your ambassadors in the places you call us to. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.